You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. scrutiny that's being provided by the cyber liability companies is not going to go down. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses the Fifth Circuit's controversial take on content moderation. I've got the story of the Pentagon taking a closer look at its covert psychological operations. And later in the show, Gary Brickhouse from GuidePoint Security joins us. We're discussing continued changes when it comes to cybersecurity insurance. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's start things off here, and I'm going to let you take the lead. I have to say, the story that you're doing this week, I've seen a lot of uh, discussion on Twitter, and I don't want to, you know, bury the lead or, or uh, I don't know, ru- ruin the surprise, but th- there's people seem to be taking the point of view that the Fifth Circuit Court has kind of gone bonkers here. <laughs> yeah, they've really... Uh... <laughs> They've come up with a decision that I think goes against decades worth of uh, internet law. Okay. And is a major threat not only to big tech companies, uh, but could be a inf- an inflection point in First Amendment law generally. Hmm. Uh, and it's really a profoundly, I don't want to say disturbing, because I'm not sure that the outcome is necessarily going to be disturbing to people. I'll say eye-opening. Um, because it certainly contains a lot of legal theories, which, if extended to their logical conclusions, would render a lot of what we teach in constitutional law uh, to be relatively moot. Huh. So with all that background, um, I'll get into a little bit of the history here. We've talked about this story in the past. Basically, Texas passed a law, HB 20, mm-hmm. uh, which said that large tech companies, and they specified which companies qualify, generally uh, ones that are available to the public and have a certain number of users, are barred from moderating content on their platforms based on viewpoint. Hmm. So they can moderate for a bunch of other things. Uh, the Texas law allows them to moderate for threats of violence, harassment, or any speech that might violate federal law. Hmm. Um, but they are not allowed to moderate based on the viewpoint expressed um, by the users. Now, again, this doesn't only – this is – the impetus for this law was alleged viewpoint discrimination against conservatives, this idea that users were being deplatformed for their political views. But the law doesn't actually say anything about it being political viewpoints uh, that are that are being uh, censored here. Hmm. Uh, it could be any viewpoint uh, on any issue, uh, and the law prohibits these platforms from – any sort of moderation activity, uh, deleting accounts, suspending accounts, 
based on the viewpoint of the users. So somebody could just come in and make a, a nuisance of themselves, you know, comment on every post in some platform and say, I love chocolate chip cookies. They're the best. And, and just take over, right? And, yes. And, and the, this law would prohibit the platform from deleting or, or suspending their account. Well, it's it only addresses viewpoints. It only addresses suspending accounts based on their viewpoints. Uh-huh. So it leads to some possibly absurd conclusions. This was mentioned in another article that I read. Okay. Uh, but let's say somebody is harassing a woman, an individual, um, by saying something like she's ugly. Hmm. If you take this Texas law literally, the only way you could suspend that user for harassing this woman and calling her ugly is if you would suspend another user who called her attractive because that's the only way you would not be discriminating based on the viewpoint of the user, if that makes sense. Wow. Uh, so that that could lead to a possibly absurd conclusion like that. Okay. So Texas passed this law. The enforcement mechanism is actually relatively weak. Uh, you can, any individual user who feels that they've been wronged under this law, that they've been censored, can sue one of these tech companies or the attorney general of Texas can bring a suit. But the relief is an injunction basically forcing the platform to, to put the user back on the platform to end a suspension, et cetera. Hmm. Uh, and there wouldn't be any damages awarded. So the punishment is, is pretty nominal. Uh, but obviously, this could have profound effects. Technically, it's limited just to the state of Texas. But as we know, when one state or entity or jurisdiction comes up with a law that's sweeping, all of the platforms are going to have to conform their policies to comply with this law because uh, it's really hard to determine which of their users actually live and reside in Texas or are Texas users for the purpose of this law. And then there's another section of the law that's pretty burdensome that has all these reporting requirements that basically these tech companies have said – we're not going to be able to comply with these. They're hmm. just too complicated. Okay. So the district court, the federal district court, held that this law was unconstitutional uh, because it abridged the free speech rights of the platforms. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, there's this idea that the First Amendment protects individuals from government interference when it comes to their own speech, but also it protects you from the government compelling you to speak. Uh, So the government cannot force you to say something against your will. And that Mm. was the general holding of that district uh, district court case. There have been some Supreme Court cases that have alluded to this, talking about this idea of editorial control. Basically, on a neutral platform, it is the right of a private entity to exercise some degree of editorial control. Mm -hmm. The Fifth Circuit, in a uh, decision that didn't say anything at all, uh, reinstated the law, overturned the district court, The Supreme Court went back to the 5th District, said, not so fast. You can't do that. Hmm. Uh, We're going to take this law back out of effect. So restore the original injunction from the district court. You have to actually go through a full proceeding and hear this case on uh, on the merits and draft a decision on the merits. And that's what the 5th Circuit did. So there's a three-judge panel, uh, one Trump-appointed judge and two George W. Bush appointees. Hmm. And in a 2-1 decision authored... uh, by an individual, a judge named Andy Oldham, saying that this law is constitutional. It is not an infringement on the First Amendment rights of these platforms. The money quote is that, uh, today we reject the idea that corporations have a free-willing First Amendment right to censor what people say. Because the district court held otherwise, we reverse its injunction and remand for further proceedings. So in the view of this court, the, the district court 
aired because they mistook moderating and censoring content for compelling speech. Hmm. Uh, And that's a distinction that this Fifth Circuit panel does not see. Um, They don't believe that this law uh, has the effect of inhibiting free speech. They believe this law has the effect of inhibiting uh, inhibiting censorship. Hmm. This is a really surprising conclusion, to say the least. <laughs> I, was gonna go, I, I really want to interrupt you, but I want to let you finish because it's go, 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 go. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can interrupt <laughs> me at any time. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of sort through this myself. Yeah. So there are decades worth of court decisions basically supporting this idea of editorial control for private companies. Right. Um, there was a case back in the 70s when there was a neutrality law in the state of Florida, which basically said if a newspaper prints an op-ed, they have to print an opposing view. Hmm. And the Miami Herald said, we disagree with the opposing view in, in this case. Um, I think it was some political statement that they didn't want uh, published in, in their own newspaper. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court said that a private company, in that case the newspaper, could not be compelled to to speak. They could not be compelled to publish something that goes against their wishes and values. What the court is saying here, what the Fifth Circuit is saying is that content moderation platforms like Twitter and Facebook are distinct from newspapers. Newspapers have editorial pages. They have a limited number of, uh, uh, of space in each issue. So you can only write a set number of articles. It's not unlimited the way the, the uh, broader internet is. Hmm. Uh, and they say, confirmed by Section 230, these platforms are properly viewed as platforms. They're not speakers in and of themselves. They hold themselves out as being available to the public. Anybody can post. Um, so they are just fundamentally different in uh, in nature. Hmm. Uh, that view leads to some pretty problematic results. So, for example, if there was Nazi propaganda on one of these platforms, if you read this Texas law literally, that is a viewpoint, and you would not be able to censor or suspend an account based on that viewpoint unless you also suspended an account that expressed the opposite viewpoint. So this was another hypothetical I heard. Let's say there's a Nazi on on Twitter posting Nazi propaganda, the only way that Twitter could ban them is if they also banned somebody who said maybe Jewish people shouldn't have been annihilated in the Holocaust uh, 70 years ago. That's wow. the end result of uh, what this law would do. Uh, so that's sort of one of their justifications. They laid out several justifications, just kind of throwing you-know-what at the wall to see what's, <laughs> what stuck. Uh, one of them that they are really flirting with, uh, which is an interesting argument we've seen reflected at other places, is that these platforms are, for the purposes of the law, common carriers. Mm-hmm. So generally, the First Amendment only applies against the government. Right. Um, the first words of the amendment are, Congress shall make no law. It has been incorporated to the states. Uh, as far as I know, Twitter and Facebook are not government entities, at least <laughs> as we speak. Um, but there's this whole area of the common law where private entities can be regulated if they are, uh, quote, common carriers. Basically, if they have cornered the market and are something that's so in the public sphere that they are the equivalent to a government agency. So mm-hmm. things like telephone companies, uh, methods of communication, railroads, transport, uh, Justice Thomas, in a concurrence to a separate case, hinted at the idea that these platforms could be held up as common carriers and thus 
state governments or the federal government could potentially regulate them and force them to comply with these types of policies. And the majority in this case basically agrees, saying that for all intents and purposes, these companies should or at least could be considered common carriers, uh, which would allow the uh, Texas state legislature to regulate their activities. Hmm. Uh, in a lot of different ways, these companies are very distinct from a telephone company. I mean, they do Twitter, Facebook, they do have much more of an editorial component to them than just a simple phone company that facilitates phone calls from one place to another. Um, they have a brand to protect, and they also have a market. Um, their sites like Twitter and Facebook are competing with other social media sites, and they would rather have a platform where there isn't a lot of Nazi propaganda because that might be very unpleasant uh, for the users of that platform and they right. might decide to go elsewhere. Right. Uh, so the end result of this is a rather convoluted decision that upholds this Texas law. So for the time being, uh, at least in the state of Texas, these companies are barred from discriminating against uh, users on their platforms based on the viewpoints of those users. Uh, the tech companies and their trade associations are certainly going to appeal this to the Supreme Court. Uh, based on what the Supreme Court did at an earlier phase of uh, the judicial history here, it seems likely the Supreme Court is going to strike down the Fifth Circuit's decision, but we can't be 100% sure. Um, that's that's the thing, isn't it, right now? Like, <laughs> You do not want to be relying on this Supreme Court to, to overturn uh, decisions that might have shocked legal observers because it's happened repeatedly over the past several years. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a 6-3 conservative majority. Granted, a couple of justices seem disinclined to uphold the Texas law at earlier stages in, in this proceeding. Uh, but we just don't know what's going to happen. I would guess that the Supreme Court is going to hear this case on the merits. But for the time being, the Texas state legislature has completely changed internet law in, in this country. Uh, and for the first time, there is a ban on these platforms from moderating the content uh, uh, of their users. And that's something that's really profound and, uh, and groundbreaking. It just seems chaotic to me. I mean, we, you and I, we talk about all the time about how, you know, every now and then someone uh, has this notion that they're going to have a, a, a total, you know, 100% free speech platform, and it never works. It no, just, it never it works. It doesn't work. You can't do it. We've not talked about it, and even if these companies, as they have, uh, try to present themselves as beacons of free speech, those mm -hmm. are their values, we want to foster a political conversation, it just doesn't work in practice because ultimately you're going to get an army of trolls or people with, frankly, patently offensive views, whether political or not, right? Uh, that make the platform unusable for everybody else. And that's going to hurt the market share for these platforms. I don't personally don't want to be on a website where they allow <laughs> Nazi content uh, yeah. or things that are similarly offensive, but that could be considered viewpoints. And if you take the Texas law literally and this decision literally, that's exactly what's going to happen uh, because that is, whether you believe in it or not, it is a viewpoint. Um, it's not necessarily harassment or anything else against the law to express a Nazi ideology. It's a viewpoint. Uh, and therefore, 
you can't suspend a user for expressing that viewpoint, even mm-hmm. if that viewpoint is the annihilation by genocide of an entire class of people. Right. Uh, and that's what this decision does. Do, do the judges reveal at all what really what they're after here? Like what, you know, why this, why supporting such a fundamental change? Um, because to me, like, this to me was so established that it was a joke, right? Like every time someone would scream censorship at uh, at Twitter or Facebook, you know, folks like you would have to come out. <laughs> folks who actually know this stuff would say, it's not censored. The First Amendment protects people against the government. It doesn't protect people, you know, it doesn't, right? Like I know, I've had to face <laughs> the fact that maybe I don't know what I'm talking about anymore. Oh. That maybe everything I've ever said is just an illusion right, because right, the Fifth Circuit can come along and say, you know, it's actually not Twitter. Being a private company is actually not the most relevant factor. Right. Uh, and they basically say that for a variety of reasons. One, they don't think that this actually counts as speech. Editorial control, in their view, um, isn't a well-founded principle at the Supreme Court. I disagree with that wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that this isn't speech. This is just stopping the censorship of speech. But to me, that is a a form of speech. Moderating the content on one's own platform is speaking with with a uh, editorial voice. It's making a decision about the values and uh, the practices of the company, which is in effect a, a form of speech. Uh, and then they also say that even if it is speech, that these are common carriers that could be subject to federal or state regulation, even though they're private companies. And that uh, creates a, a bunch of potentially problematic uh, outcomes. Uh The dissenting judge in this case, a guy by the name of Leslie Southwick, is a George W. Bush appointee. He is no squish. Uh, He is extremely conservative. Mm. He is actually somewhat sympathetic to the majority and is against viewpoint discrimination in all its forms, but says you can't really deny that this is uh, constitutionally protected speech on the part of these platforms. If we get to a point where the platforms completely lose control of their own service, that they lose the power of content moderation, then the, the platforms have, have lost their voice. They've lost their their place in the market. Right. Um, it will dis- destroy their platform, basically. I'm thinking, like, if I had a restaurant and somebody, you know, came to my restaurant every day and caused a disturbance, you know, uh, so where the other diners could not enjoy themselves— it should be within my rights to show that person the door. Right. Isn't that what we're talking about here? There's a sign in restaurants that say we refuse the right to uh, refuse service to anyone. Now, what this court cites is a case, and you and I have talked about this case, from California probably about 30 years ago now, where a shopping mall tried to stop a group of individuals from distributing leaflets. Mm. And the Supreme Court said that For all intents and purposes, that shopping mall is a public forum. It's open to the public. Anybody can go in there. Uh, And therefore, as a quasi-public entity, even though the mall was privately owned, they cannot uh, censor speech. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of reasons why this case is different from that one. Uh, That one wasn't a content-based restriction on speech. Uh, That was just a general prohibition against distributing leaflets. As much as the court here insists otherwise, this is a content-based restriction on the speech of Twitter and Facebook and all of the other uh, tech companies. They are forcing them to put particular content on their website. That is 
to me, the definition of a content-based restriction. And courts, especially the Supreme Court, looks very disfavorably on any speech restriction based on the content. Uh, And Mm. I think it it is a mistake in this decision for the majority to say, well, this actually isn't a content-based restriction. It's actually a content-neutral restriction. Um, I'm not going to get into the importance of that distinction. It does change uh, the level of scrutiny that the court has to apply to that law. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can see why it's fundamentally different when we're talking about the generalized right to distribute leaflets in a public mall, regardless of what those leaflets say, versus you can imagine a hypothetical in that case where the leaflets being distributed were about exterminating the Jews or something. Yeah. Uh, and I think it would be much more within the mall's discretion because it would disturb other users, might hurt their their business, uh, might dissuade certain customers from shopping in that mall it would probably certainly be in their discretion uh, to remove those users from their platform, Hmm. Uh, their platform being the the private mall. So you can see why I don't think that's a particularly apt comparison in this case. So where do we stand now? I mean, are are we in like a, are we in a no man's land in the time between this? So this is in effect and, but as you say, it's going to go to the Supreme court most likely what happens now? It's anarchy, man. I mean, <laughs> the law is in effect. There are a couple of options that the trade associations that represent these companies have. They can appeal to have this court uh, to have this case reheard on banc, meaning it wouldn't just be a three court uh, or a three judge panel of the Fifth Circuit. It would be the whole Fifth Circuit, which is how many? Uh, I don't know the exact number. Probably something like fifteen judges. Okay. I don't think that's a viable option. If mm. you know anything about the Fifth Circuit, it's uh, your <laughs> your chance of getting a favorable decision from the full Fifth Circuit is just as good as getting a favorable decision from a three-judge panel. It's okay. a very conservative circuit. The vast majority of the judges are George W. Bush or Donald Trump appointees. Okay. So you wouldn't fare well there. Is this kind of like one of those things uh, in football where— you know, it's the the call on the field has to be. It's it's harder to overturn the call on the field. You have to have overwhelming evidence. That yeah, kind of thing. Uh, yeah, for the, the standard of uh, review. <laughs> right, right. Well, sort of. Yeah. Uh, I mean, generally, that is how review works in our appellate system. That's why they do it in football. It yeah. is based on our our legal system that <laughs> the burden is on the losing party to to prove that the decision was egregious. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think these companies are going to take the tack of. Uh, appealing this to the Supreme Court and urging them to grant certiorari so that the Supreme Court hears it on the merits. They also could request that the Supreme Court issue another separate injunction, uh, which would be an emergency stay of the Fifth Circuit decision, saying that this Fifth Circuit decision is so egregious that we can't allow it to stand even while we review the case on the merits. Hmm. Uh, That's a much harder standard to overcome. Uh, The Supreme Court would have to see that this type of law would cause irreparable harm to these tech companies. If I'm the tech companies, I could very plausibly allege uh, that that type of harm uh, for a number of reasons. One, the nature of these platforms is going to be fundamentally different if they lose their right to do content moderation. Right. Uh, I've said this several times in the past. Uh, I think it's true for me. I think it's true for you. We would leave those platforms uh, if content moderation was so weak or insufficient that we were confronted with offensive, trollish, uh, so-called viewpoints. Yeah. Uh, whether we 
believe in a robust First Amendment or not, that would just be a very unpleasant experience for us. And we'd, we'd leave that platform. If enough of us leave the platform, they're going to lose their advertising dollars. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be irreparable harm to, to their business. And I could see that happening. I mean, if our feeds get clogged with a bunch of quote-unquote viewpoints that are so unpleasant and objectionable and Twitter or Facebook is banned from doing any type of content moderation, I think a lot of people are going to leave the platforms. Yeah. Uh, so I think you could certainly argue irreparable harm there. Hmm. If they don't reach that irreparable harm uh, bar and there isn't an injunction, then this law will stay in place until the Supreme Court hears it on the merits. Um, like I said, if I had to guess, I think the Supreme Court is going to reverse this decision. Um, but there's no way to be 100% sure. And we could be entering a new era where the teeth of content moderation uh, have been extracted from, from these websites. And basically, the Texas state legislature or any other state legislature uh, could determine what type of content is permissible on these uh private platforms. And that's really a fundamental sea change. Suppose the Supreme Court agrees with the Fifth Circuit here and says, yes, you're absolutely right. And after that, you know, chaos ensues. (laughs) You know, it's clear that it's unworkable. Is is it then up to Congress to come in and, and try to make, you know, make sense of this? Yeah, so Congress could do that. They could preempt uh, Texas state law or any other state law by passing a law, either explicitly preempting it, saying that this is a area of federal concern and our laws will preempt yours, uh-huh. uh, or they could uh, implicitly preempt it by coming up with sort of a nationwide standard. Uh, and in that case, courts would likely find that the federal government's rules preempted state rules because the internet is is a national thing. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. use it in all 50 states, and therefore it falls under federal jurisdiction. Uh, federal government has the right to regulate interstate commerce. The internet is pretty clearly interstate commerce, uh, so they could do that. Um, but you kind of just have to question all of these legal precepts. I say things like, oh, well, you know, the Congress could come in and pass a law preempting state law. If we're throwing into question decades worth of First Amendment law and internet law, what's to say that the courts won't step in and reverse decades worth of law on preemption? Mm -hmm. I mean, we're in a whole new world. Everything's changed here, and we have to rethink some of these doctrines uh, that we thought we understood. So the answer is yes, Congress could step in. I I think um, they could pass a law that clearly preempts uh, state law, but that's not 100% foolproof. And... um, as we've mentioned many times, Congress has a really difficult time agreeing on uh, laws that are politically controversial. Yeah. And this would certainly be politically controversial in a in a polarized Congress. So um, that would be very difficult even if the Supreme Court stepped in. Mm. All right. Stay tuned. Time will tell. <laughs> I'm sure we will talk more about this. And there's so much to this case. I recommend that people read up on it uh, if they can. We'll have... More in the show notes. I tried to do it justice, but I'm still wrapping my head around it. um, And uh, I think it'll take a a while to digest. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the interest of uh, time, we're going to make that our only story this week. Um, We would love to hear from you. If there's something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecyberwire.com.
And now, a message from CyberBit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then, you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need CyberBit. CyberBit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Gary Brickhouse. He is from GuidePoint Security. Uh, and we're discussing you know, some of the volatility we're seeing in the cybersecurity insurance market, something that uh, touches most organizations these days. Here's my conversation with Gary Brickhouse. You know, from a cyber liability uh, insurance perspective, I think companies, obviously, those insurance carriers saw a need. Right, just in the same way that they, you know, if you look back over the history of, uh, you know, uh, needing insurance for your vehicle or for trips or for, you know, natural disasters like hurricanes, you, there was always a need for it. And if, you know, anytime there was an opportunity to protect an organization uh, or help them, you know, protect them financially, you know, to help uh, reduce the amount of losses incurred, great. It's a, it's a great fit. And so, you know, over the last few years, you certainly saw this, you know, sort of jump up pretty dramatically, I would say, in terms of helping companies reduce that risk and give organizations, you know, in the same way that we do risk management work for all aspects of our business, right? This was just one more way to reduce the risk of, you know, the financial hit of having, you know, either the, the ultimate impact of, of a ransomware event or, or operational issues tied to it, you know, whatever those things might be. And I think, and so I think they did a good job of putting offerings out there and allowing companies to, you know, pay into that and cap their, you know, liabilities, you know, as best they could. Uh, but then what you saw, especially, you know, within the last, I'd say, two years in particular, uh, with the amount of, you know, ransomware as it continued to rise, as organizations were continuing to sort of cash in, so to speak, on, the, on their insurance policies. Mm, mm-hmm. I think the, you know, the insurance companies found out really quickly uh, that, hey, wait a minute, you know, we're, we're hemorrhaging quite a bit of money on behalf of these companies. Uh, and so I think it, you know, really to bring it up to where we are today in a really fast, you know, statement you know, I think they realized that, man, we we took on a lot more risk than we had anticipated. And, and we didn't anticipate that organizations would be, you know, relying on these policies as much as they have needed to. And so whether that's a statement on, you know, sort of the state of our industry and, and maybe the, the insurance carriers didn't quite, you know, anticipate a, a spike in ransomware, for instance, Right. Uh, and, and they sort of got caught. The other thing, you know, that I always think about is, you know, they just don't, they haven't historically had the claim data, claims data to really make educated, is educated decisions about it as say, like hurricanes, for instance, right? I mean, we have decades mm-hmm. and decades mm-hmm. worth of 
of claims data on hurricanes, you know, how impactful it was and, you know, how many people filed claims and what were the claims, you know, what was the average claim amount and all those sorts of things. And the same, obviously, in the, you know, in the automobile industry. Uh, But we don't have that in cyber today. We're getting it very quickly, (laughs) obviously. Mm -hmm. Um, And there, and hence, right, I think that's why you see all the activity today that I'm sure we're going to unpack more around, you know, just sort of rising premiums and, um, all the scrutiny that's going into an organization's ability uh, to get liability coverage. Yeah, it's interesting to me to see how uh, there's been this shift and and cybersecurity companies are in some ways, you know, driving security practices within organizations, uh, the insurance companies, you know, and it's similar to, I think it's similar in the way that, uh, for example, if you're going to insure a building, you have to have sprinklers, you know, you have to have fire extinguishers, those sorts of things. And we're seeing that in cyber as well. Yeah, absolutely. And what I would even say, uh, and again, they have the same sort of uh, standards that you're referring to, uh, you know, that those are becoming more and more sort of stated and known. What I would say is, is a really make, it makes me think about two things. One is from a controls perspective, uh, like again, to use the sprinkler analogy, you know, they're really focused on things like multi-factor authentication and endpoint protection um, you know, the logging and monitoring that comes with that encryption, right, is a big deal. Uh, so those are all becoming sort of these baseline fundamentals of what's expected, you know, from an organization. Now, what I would say is, you know, again, over the past few years, it started with, you know, more or less of a yes, no checkbox. Do you have this? <laughs> yes or no? Mm-hmm. And they sort of took that answer. And so I can tell you, you know, within our own organization of, of having to go get cyber liability insurance, right? It, you know, several years ago, it was a, a you know, fairly straightforward, yes, no checkbox sort of exercise. Uh, and that has only grown in complexity. And so now uh, I would say it isn't enough to just say, well, yeah, we have multi-factor authentication. Uh, they want to see evidence of that, right? They want to see uh, that your configuration, they want to see how your endpoint devices are being managed uh, to, uh, you know, the, like the EDR controls, for instance, you know, how are those systems locked down uh, to make sure that they are configured appropriately and how often are they getting updated? Again, so it isn't just enough that, hey, I have this in place or I'm going to tell you I have this in place. We're seeing a big push from the uh, insurers to, to really want to validate that, you know, so those validation exercises uh, and frankly, the or subsequently, the time uh, it takes is just increasing, you know, dramatically to go do all those things. You know, something we've talked about on this show from time to time is the the notion that, or the question, I suppose, could cybersecurity insurance go the way of flood insurance, where the private companies say we can't handle this, and the federal government ultimately becomes the backstop. Do you suppose there's a possibility we could be headed in that direction? Yeah, I mean, certainly the possibility is there. What's interesting, what I think sort of will play into that discussion is, again, is, is the scrutiny around policies has, have increased. We're starting to see more and more sort of carve-outs to when they will and will not uh, sort of pay out on those claims. So, for instance... Uh, a lot of policies today have a carve-out for nation-state. So, for instance, if the ransomware that you have in your environment is tied to a nation-state attack, 
they may not pay out that claim. Uh, similar if it has, uh, like if, it was, if you didn't have, say, MFA, uh, multi-factor authentication deployed fully in your environment and, you know, the uh, attack happened in a particular part uh, that could have been prevented, at least in the carrier's eyes, uh, then they're not going to pay out. And so I think as you see sort of more and more of those carve-outs, more and more of those reasons why the insurance companies, you know, will choose not to pay or, you know, I think at some point, could it lead to that? Absolutely. Could I see the government stepping in to some degree and saying, hey, we've got to provide this level of some base level of coverage here for some of these things? Sure. I think the difference, though, is, you know, again, I think there's a lot of ownership on behalf of the companies to sort of protect themselves and to have the right level of controls. Whereas, you know, in some degree, you know, you can't really prevent a natural disaster, although you can reduce the impact of it. I don't know that that is how everybody feels about malicious activity, right? I mean, I think at the mm. end of the day, people seem to think that, hey, all malicious activity can, pre- can be prevented. Um, I don't know that I <laughs> agree with that uh, right. holistically, uh, but I have a feeling that that will be the pushback, you know, uh, from, say, like a government side. I think they'll say, well, you know, just do better, right? Do, do better, you know, mm-hmm. I- improve the controls that you have and reduce your risk and you won't need the insurance anyway. So I don't know. I see that. It's an interesting question and thought. Uh, it seems that if that were to be the case, it seems it would be, you know, more longer term than near term for sure. What sort of potential changes do you see on the horizon if we're headed for hard times financially in the economy? If, we're, if, we're, if we do go into a recession, how's that going to affect the relationship people have with their cyber insurers? Yeah, man, that is such a great question because, you know, what we're seeing right now is a fairly significant increase in the premiums across the board. And so, you know, I don't have a specific number for you, but certainly what we've seen just through our own experience is, you know, usually like a a 5X type growth, right? We're not talking, you know, small incremental, you know, increase. We're talking, you know, significant increase in the premiums. And so I think, you know, that's going to lend organizations, it's going to put them in sort of an interesting perspective, right? Because from a from a economy standpoint, if, if revenue's down and economy's down, uh, and then now they're having to pay more uh, and to some degree for less, is it really worth it, right? And, and the other thing mm. that we're seeing too that comes into play is a lot of organizations and carriers now, they're restricting their liability up to about $5 million. And so, and, and that may not be holistically true, but again, most, we are seeing a move of lowering the sort of that coverage cap to around 5 million. Well, okay, so how much am I going to pay out? <laughs> and mm-hmm. how much am I going to get back? And if I can, the most I can only get back is 5 million anyway. Is it worth it? I'll just roll the dice. And so, you know, I think there's going to have to be an interesting conversation, you know, and I think the, you know, history will bear it out over the next year or two of what happens uh, between sort of a, you know, if the economy does continue to go down, we do go into a recession and where companies are looking to invest money. And I will just tell you, like in this case, I could see people not going down the path, looking for other alternatives, right? They can take that 5 million uh, and invest it in other areas, right? Where they might Mm -hmm. feel that it, it better secures them. Now, with that being said, just to talk out of the other side of my mouth for a minute, 
what's interesting is, you know, while that may be happening, we see, especially on say like the service provider side of the house, uh, this is becoming more and more of a non-negotiable, right? This is sort of table stakes. Uh, you have, you know, if you're going to do business with me, do you have cyber liability insurance? And let me see, let me see it. You, you know, like what are you, how much are you covered for? And so, you know, it's going to create an interesting dynamic because to some degree, some organizations don't have a choice. You know, they're going to have to pay it regardless because if they want to continue to do business, uh, again, that has become table stakes, you know, to continue to offer uh, the services or, or product that they're doing. And, and again, you can look at some of the data that you see happening out there with, uh, with you know, breaches that are tied uh, to service providers and the services that they provide, uh, you know, where, you know, all of a sudden you have a service provider that has some sort of a, a breach and now that breach can impact, you know, thousands of customers, you know, guess what, right? They're, they're, you know, as, as that uh, attack vector is, you know, right in the spotlight right now, we're only going to see more of that, and that's only going to push requirements for those type of organizations uh, to have, you know, again, some certain level of of liability insurance. So, to those companies, you know, the economy isn't going to matter, right? They have to do it, you know, just to stay in business. What's your advice for organizations trying to get a handle on this? Any any words of wisdom for how to approach things with the the rapid uh, changes that we're seeing? So, what I can guarantee. <laughs> what, what I guarantee is that at the end of the day, like the scrutiny that's being provided by the cyber liability companies is not going to go down. It's only going to continue mm. at the pace that it is or continue to grow. And so to that degree, right, I think companies should start to prepare for that in the sense of, you know, assuring that they have the right level of security controls in place you know, prior to certainly of, of, you know, either going up, you know, going up for renewal or for getting more, you know, just going for coverage, you know, straight out, know that you're going to be asked these questions, know that the organizations are going to do a, a fair amount of digging and validation of those controls. And frankly, if you don't have these things, uh, you might be in trouble. And you may not get either, you know, you may not get the level of coverage that you want, or you may not get any at all. And, and I would even say for some organizations who, you know, maybe in years past, you know, they haven't been asked to validate the controls that they have, uh, you can pretty much guarantee that you're going to, you know, on your next renewal. So in terms of just sort of advice and preparation, I would tell organizations, you know, just know that that piece is coming. Know that they are scanning your environment, right, from the outside to understand what vulnerabilities you have. You know, they're, they're becoming more savvy uh, in terms of of your security posture, and just be prepared to strengthen that as best you can. You know, either you know prior to going in and trying to get coverage. Ben, what do you think? I'm worried that we're going to get into the doom loop of federal flood insurance. And this interview mm. didn't do any, uh, didn't do much to assuage those con- uh, concerns. Yeah. It just feels like the way the threat landscape is now, uh, the cost of insuring companies is increasing. The premiums are increasing. 
Uh, if fewer companies are willing to pay the premiums, that could start an insurance death spiral where there's not enough money in the pool to pay out claims. Uh, and I think uh, Mr. Brickhouse talked about that very uh, in a very compelling way. So I'm worried about how this market is going to develop uh, since everyone and their mother is getting hit by ransomware attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, this is more of a concern. And I think the market is going to have to work itself out where it can properly assess risk and address the needs of customers without going bankrupt uh, as an industry. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to Gary Brickhouse for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>